Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. The war in Ukraine is going on, even though it's not on every front page every day anymore. And something interesting is happening, which is that as regards what the end state might look like, what victory or defeat might look like, what governments and the media are saying in public is quite different from what they say in private. The Zelensky government has taken a very hard line, talking about nothing short of recapturing Crimea, as well as the areas of eastern Ukraine, would be tolerable or even possible for them when thinking about potential peace scenarios. But when you speak to people in private, they're a little bit more realistic. This division is actually really, really important and something we want to understand. Happily, someone called Anatole Levin has been following this closely. He's a former war correspondent and he's now director of the Eurasia program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington. He recently got back from a long stint in Ukraine where he was interviewing ordinary people, soldiers, government officials about their views and what was really going on in the ground. He joins us from York in England. Hi, Anatol. Hello. This question of Crimea, it feels like it's almost becoming a, a sort of taboo because, as I said in the introduction, what people say in public is very different to what informed people are saying in private. Is that what you observe as well? In part, yes. I mean, there were also highly informed people who who said in private uh, that Ukraine must recover Crimea. But there certainly was a a very perceptible difference um, uh, among people in general between what people were prepared to say on the record and and off the record. Uh, Because, um, I mean, very understandably, as a result of the Russian invasion, uh, but also, you know, very much as a result of government rhetoric and government control of the media, a public mood uh, has been created whereby nothing but complete victory will do. And I think uh, that this also reflected the fact that in the autumn, after a, a string of, uh, you, you know, uh, extremely impressive Ukrainian victories, the reconquest of Eastern uh, um, Kharkov, uh, the reconquest of Kherson, uh, the Ukrainians really had the idea or got the idea that they could completely defeat the Russians. But now, uh, as we see from the, the latest Pentagon leaks, uh, a an awareness is is growing and uh, also, of course, you know, Ukrainians have talked to Western officials. Western military analysis now is that for the Ukrainians to go further uh, and uh, to reconquer all the territory lost since 2014 will be extremely difficult for them. 
uh, if the Russians stand on the defensive, as they now clearly intend to do, dig in and use their artillery superiority, the Ukrainians will have a, a very hard time. Uh, there is also the belief that Russia would, in the last resort, escalate very seriously if Crimea did seem to come under threat. So really, whichever way it goes for the Ukrainians, um, even if, as they hope, they manage to recover all or most of what they've lost since last year, uh, at that point, they will come under serious pressure, I think, from the West to uh, seek a ceasefire. You say escalate seriously. I think most people would listen to that and wonder whether you mean nuclear. Do you? Not straight to nuclear, no. I mean, and probably not in, in Ukraine, if only because the Russians would be using nuclear weapons in territory that they claim is theirs, which would, even by Russian standards, look a bit uh, paradoxical. But, you know, there are many other ways in which they could begin a process of escalation. Uh, for example, um, they could uh, knock out American satellites, which have done so much to help the Ukrainians with intelligence. Uh, a former CIA friend expressed surprise to me that the Russians haven't done that already, given how much damage those satellites have done. Uh, or, of course, they could sabotage Western infrastructure. And they would say that this was in simply in retaliation for uh, the uh, alleged American destruction of Nord Stream. But you can see how this would begin a, a spiral of escalation and American and NATO response that could, in the end, finish up with nuclear war. So there's kind of two things going on here, aren't there? One is that this idea of reconquering all of the territory and including Crimea is not likely to happen. It's not actually very feasible, whilst publicly, the impression is given that it is. And then secondarily, even if it could happen, it wouldn't necessarily be desirable. Uh, one phrase I've heard used is catastrophic success, and how powers in the West want to avoid catastrophic success from the Ukrainians. So could we just go through those first? What is your evidence for the idea that actually reconquering all of the Donbass plus Crimea isn't going to happen? Well, I wouldn't say that it's completely impossible. The Ukrainians, you know, have surprised us uh, again and again. And, um, you know, armies do sometimes collapse, uh, as the uh, Russian army collapsed in 1917, for example. Uh, but it certainly looks fairly, you know, unlikely in military terms, because the same things that worked for the Ukrainians when the Russians were on the offensive will now work uh, for the Russians when they're on the defensive. Such as? Anti-tank weapons, superiority in artillery, and simply the fact that in highly built-up areas, uh, these work in the, in the, to the advantage of the, of the defence. I mean, look, look at how the Russians have been held up in Bakhmut for five months now. So, uh, it, no, I mean, it doesn't look terribly likely. You also mentioned mines in your report from Ukraine. So tell us about that. There's now thousands of mines on both sides of this increasingly sort of stable front. Every Ukrainian soldier uh, I talked to, and that included several who had lost legs uh, to mines, talked about mines as a, a really major factor. Uh, both sides are using them. But of course, mines are uh, a defensive weapon. And uh, I was told that, you know, a lot of the time Russian attacks fail but chiefly because of mines 
They send forward small groups to try to, after heavy bombardment, to take Ukrainian positions. They blow themselves up on mines and then they stop and go back. So yes, and I mean, mines obviously have an effect in, in bogging down and freezing the battlefield. Is it not illegal? I mean, I know it sounds like a, a detail these days when you're engaging in such a major war, but was there not a big treaty to stop putting down landmines? Uh, and, and why is Ukraine, as well as Russia, ignoring it? Uh, well, <laughs> the United States didn't sign it either, um, because it uses mines in in uh, South Korea uh, against a possible North Korean invasion. So, I mean, some countries have signed the anti-mine convention, others have not, but uh, it's really a case of the pot calling the kettle black here. So, okay, so so we think practically it's it's unlikely. It's a, it's a edge case scenario in which Ukraine is able to suddenly take over all of that territory. To move on to the second question then, would it even be desirable if it was possible? What's your view on that? Well, one thing that is very striking uh, is that uh, if you talk to people, both, I mean, intelligent people, both in the West uh, and in Ukraine, and ask them, you know, why it's worth taking the immense risks of trying to reconquer Crimea, uh, not just the, the immense risks, but also uh, the possibility that Ukraine will you know, have to go on and on and on attacking, using up its manpower, using up its reserves of weapons. And when you push people, the first answer is, um, well, we must inflict a total defeat on the Russians so that they can't threaten Ukraine again in future. And then you say, but losing Crimea won't do that because, uh, after all, Russia will still be there with a thousand-mile border with uh, with Ukraine. And indeed, losing Crimea might create a mood of revenge in, in Russia, which would make a, a future Russian offensive against Ukraine even more likely. Well, then the answer is very often yes, but uh, losing Crimea would bring down the government of uh, the regime of Putin, which I think is, it, if it could happen, it very likely would. And then you say, well, but, you know, Putin is only one Russian ruler, you know, there will be new, more Russian rulers uh, who, um, you know, will carry on the war. Then the reply very often is, ah, but the fall of Putin would bring about the disintegration of Russia. It would basically end Russia as a united state and finish it off as a great power. Um, and uh, so, I mean, the the intention or the hope in reconquering Crimea goes far, far beyond Crimea itself, as far as thinking people are concerned. But of course, the, the reply to that is precisely that to ward off that possibility, uh, Russia uh, really uh, might escalate towards the use of nuclear weapons. So really, it's a case of careful what you wish for. And it appears, at least from the conversations I've had with people who are behind the scenes and, and wielding influence in the West, is that yes, although there is this public statement that you know nothing short of the 2014 boundaries would be considered acceptable, they're not going to tolerate uh, this kind of aggression being rewarded with territorial gains, etc. In private, what they say is this is a public posture because they don't want to cede ground to Putin, you know, in this kind of negotiation before it's necessary. Whilst in reality, they accept that there will have to be a territorial 
deal of some kind. Is, is that what you hear and see as well? Well, it depends on who. Um, after all, you know, you have East European governments, notably the Poles and the Balts, uh, who are now part of the West. They wield enormous influence in NATO and increasingly in the European Union. And they are determined to, yes, indeed, I mean, carry on this war to the end uh, and, uh, if possible, destroy Russia as a state for, you know, historical, emotional reasons. Uh, in Washington, I think you're quite right about a majority of the uh, Biden administration, not necessarily all, if you look at the record of Victoria Newland, uh, for example. Uh, but if you look at the commentariat in the West, all certain Western figures like Annalena Baerbock, the um, foreign minister of Germany, uh, then, uh, you know, there are also some very hardline uh, figures in, in the West too. Uh, and I think part of the problem is, uh, which is true both of the Zelensky government, but also of the Biden administration, that, uh, as you say, I mean, the Biden administration has been really thinking of this as a, a as a bargaining counter. But the public language that they've used about the return of all Ukrainian territory will make it considerably more difficult for them uh, to indeed you know, make a compromise in future, even if this is a compromise that they themselves would desire. I mean, both Washington and Kiev have, to a considerable extent, and Brussels too, painted themselves into a corner here. This is what I really want to dig into, because those Western powers we just mentioned might think they're being very kind of wise and sophisticated here by maintaining this public uh, posture, privately acknowledging that it will have to move, and they think that's sort of good four-dimensional chess or game theory or whatever else. But meanwhile, there are audiences within Ukraine that are hearing it much more literally and are believing it very deeply that now nothing short of reconquering Crimea will do. And there are audiences outside Ukraine in the international community, such as Poland, such as some other states who are very anxious, who might also be taking it quite literally. So, so let's talk through those. You, you've been in Ukraine, you've spoken to a lot of people, you've looked at opinion polling evidence. And one effect you report in the latest foreign affairs piece is that there is now a pretty strong majority within Ukraine to basically stop at nothing. Peace is not attractive if it involves surrendering, or as they see it, Crimea or, or acknowledging that Crimea is now Russian. Tell us about that evidence and, and why it worries you. Well, certainly, I mean, uh, all the people I talked to on the uh, on the record said that, and uh, a yeah, I mean, a majority off the record as well. Though there was a, a definite regional difference there between people in Kiev and north of Kiev, and then people in Dnipro and Zaporizhia in in Russian speaking areas of Ukraine. Uh, but the the thing is that uh, and. Um, the, the head of Ukraine's National Security Council has said this openly. Um, as a result of encouraging this belief, which may be a fantasy, and nailing his government to it, uh, Zelensky has put him, himself in a position where if he then does go for at least you know, a ceasefire, which would freeze certain territorial issues, he is going to face massive protests at home, led, of course, by radical nationalists, uh, but also I fear by the military, which is uh, judged by the soldiers I talk to, absolutely committed to complete victory. And of course, by uh, a range of politicians hoping to replace 
Zelensky as president. Uh, and um, as the head of the National Security Council claimed, and he's one of the hardliners, uh, if Zelensky were to um, accept a peace deal uh, with Russia, uh, he would have um, committed political suicide. It's actually quite a terrifying scenario. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...you paint, because it means that Zelensky may not be in charge of what actually happens. I mean, he's very popular among Western countries. He's become a bit of a hero. But if the reality within his country is that now there are hardline nationalist groups that possibly have control of the military, have been heavily armed in part by us, and now there are, as you talk, you know, growing proportions of the general public who would support them, Zelensky's position is not secure. So although he might be planning to kind of bring this standoff to the perfect moment of maximum power and then offer a deal to Russia his people and his army might not accept such a deal. So they might be, we might be forced into a much more dangerous situation, even if Zelensky doesn't want it. Well, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, I doubt that as long as the war goes on, you would have a coup against Zelensky, because that would be suicidal for Ukraine. Uh, but you could certainly see enough pressure put on him to block a, a deal. The other thing, which, of course, I'm sure Zelensky is thinking about, that uh, two uh, historically aware Ukrainians said to me that, um, yes, you know, in the West, Zelensky is portrayed as Churchill. And, you know, indeed, Churchill was a, you know, was a great wartime leader. Uh, but three, three months after the war, the British public threw him out of government by a huge majority. And they were clearly hinting at the fact that they not only uh, expected, but hoped that that would happen to Zelensky as well. So in fact, it's hardline groups within Ukraine you know, need to be dealt with sooner rather than later, because 
if there's going to be any hope of a negotiated peace at any point, no matter what that looks like, there's going to be trouble from those people within Ukraine who don't think it's good enough. They basically, I mean, I, I can tell you I was in a private gathering with a very senior Ukrainian diplomat who, and he may have been joking, I, I said, what scenario would you be happy to negotiate peace? And he said, I'd be happy to negotiate peace in the smoking ruins of Moscow. Now, he was, it, it was a private gathering. He, he was, maybe he was joking, but it gives you a hint of the kind of talk that is going on inside Ukraine. Well, some advisors to Zelensky have said that more or less on the record, at least that, you know, that they will only accept complete Russian uh, defeat and nothing else. Uh, but I mean, how to, you say how to deal with these people? Well, of course, in the middle of a war when national unity is prioritized and also um, the United States uh, regards Ukrainian national unity as essential and a, a great American asset, that isn't going to be easy, particularly because, uh, of course, some of the most extreme nationalists, you know, the famous Azov regiment, some of whose people I talk to, uh, is, you know, has gained tremendous prestige as a result of its genuinely heroic role in the war. I mean, I think the answer is that uh, if Zelensky is to be uh, helped to make any kind of um, ceasefire, because I think it would only be a ceasefire. Be a, you know, it, it wouldn't be a formal peace settlement. Uh, that would require, I mean, not just, I mean, the strongest possible stance by the United States and much of Europe. He would, in fact, have to be able to claim to his own people and his own hardliners that he was absolutely forced into a ceasefire, uh, and that uh, you know the uh, otherwise Ukraine was going to face the abandonment of the. the complete cutoff of Western aid. Well, of course, to do that would require uh, tremendous um, political courage on the part of the Biden administration and tremendous unity on the part of the European Union and NATO. And without wishing to sound too cynical, those are not qualities that one has um, very much identified. It becomes harder and harder the more public pronouncements there are saying the opposite. You know, it's not going to be convincing that they're forcing him into a peace that he can say that he doesn't like if they're on the record a thousand times saying nothing short of full surrender will do. I mean, a Chinese diplomat years ago said to me that, you know, you in the West spend years and years by talking and talking and talking. You talk yourselves into a corner um, and then you have to spend more years getting yourselves out of the corners that you talked yourselves into. Um, you know, if you're not sure what to do, much better not to, to talk about it. I mean, it's sort of the height of irresponsibility, is it not, Anatole? To, you know, this, this kind of tendency towards black and white, Manichaean, good, goodies versus baddies rhetoric that is now popular, not just about things like the Ukraine war, but on all sorts of issues. And it seems kind of partly driven by social media and sort of desire to be on the side of the angels all the time. The fact that you've got leaders now engaging in it, um, potentially, while they think they're being really virtuous by backing Ukraine to the hilt, saying all the right things in support of Zelensky, actually, they're making the situation much more dangerous for both Zelensky and the ordinary Ukrainians. Well, I think that's right. 
Um, and of course, this black and white thinking has long been characteristic of the United States. If you remember, you know, the Bush administration after 9-11, you're with us or you're against us. Uh, but, you know, more recently, this has really spread to parts of Europe as well. I mentioned Annalena Baerbock, um, you know, the foreign minister of Germany, who sees things in an extremely black and white way that I, I think that the previous generations of Germans who had, had actually gone through the Second World War would not have done. They would have had, you know, a, a bit more moral, you know, modesty and self-awareness there. Um, and I mean, I do have to say that the much of the, it's not just the social media, but much of the Western mainstream media has, I mean, in, in part, you know, understandably as a result of you know, very justified outrage at the Russian invasion and the destruction that it's caused. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there have been a, a really serious failures uh, of um, analysis, of objective and deep analysis, and, and indeed, you know, objective and accurate reporting. I mean, I was talking to one American correspondent who shall remain nameless. And um, when asked why he, he didn't, you know, and he's, he spent... Um, He's mainly stationed in Ukraine, spent months on end there. When asked why he hadn't reported about internal political splits in Ukraine, he said, oh, he finds that too unpleasant. Um, and when asked about uh, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian state's uh, suppression of independent media and of you know, free discussion in the media, he sort of hummed and hard and he said, well, well, uh, yes, uh, may maybe that, that is an issue. But, you know, my, my role is, is, is basically to report the war. Um, well, you know, that was not the kind of journalism I was trained in by the BBC, uh, admittedly now 35 years ago. Um, you know, it does, there is a tendency towards simply uh, producing propaganda. I guess their argument, you know, probably people will watch this video and say, why are you doing the Russians' work for them? I mean, because that's the argument you hear all the time. You know, why focus on fractures within the Ukrainian government? Why focus on hard nationalist components that might be dangerous? Why be realistic or even, you know, sanguine about the chances of Russia making gains? All of those things, because you're doing Russia's propaganda for them. That's the accusation. So what is your counter to that? What's the, what's the moral case for being realistic about the situation in Ukraine? In the words of Dr. Zhivago to a challenging a Soviet propagandist after the revolution, because it is so. And it is the duty of a, a journalist, of a responsible Western journalist. And this is what, after all, we have been preaching to the rest of the world. And, you know, endless journalism courses for people from the former communist bloc from Asia, from Africa, in which, you know, Western journalists claim superiority and the right to teach for money, because we're supposedly so, so much better, so much more objective, so much cleaner and more accurate. Um, it is the duty of a journalist to report the truth. Um, you can comment on it as you wish, but the facts have to be reported. And one of the reasons is that um, in the end, I mean, academics like to sneer at journalists, but when writing about contemporary affairs, of course, academics get all their information from journalists. Well, actually, of course, policymakers as well, and certainly parliamentarians, um, people in the US Senate get most of their information about everywhere in the world from American 
newspapers. Well, they barely don't even read newspapers anymore. They watch television. If the information that they are getting is fundamentally inaccurate, then um, you, you cannot have a fact-based Western policy. So in other words, it's not just the journalists who do this are betraying their calling as journalists. They are actually uh, undermining the role of the, the, the essential role of the media uh, in politics, society and policy making. So final thought from you, we, we've talked about journalists. What about the leaders? What, what would you like to see from everyone from Rishi Sunak to Joe Biden to leaders in Europe, von der Leyen, you know, potentially even Zelensky himself? Are we talking about a, a sobering up of the language used, a dialing down of rhetoric and beginning to make space for some kind of compromise? Or, or what would you tell them to do if you were their advisor today? Well, I tell them to go on supporting Ukraine, certainly, to defend itself um, and also to do you know, m uh, more in humanitarian terms. We could be doing a great deal more. One of the reasons we aren't is that we've created this image that just to travel to Ukraine is hideously dangerous. The British Foreign Office you know, will not help British citizens to go to Ukraine because it has a travel ban. In fact, uh, in the places that I visited, and I wasn't allowed to go to the front line, um, I was facing no serious danger from the war whatsoever. Um, the, the, the level of Russian bombardment of the cities is far less than has been alleged and far less reported and far less accurate. Uh, so we should be doing that. But on the other hand, I mean, what I have repeatedly reminded people of is that uh, already, um, actually by last summer, certainly by the end of last year, uh, in historical terms, and also in terms of what the Russian government had hoped and expected at the start of the war, Ukraine has already won a huge victory. Now, 20 or 15 years ago in Ukraine, if you had traveled in the some of the Russian-speaking areas that I traveled in, because I did travel there before in, um, as, a, as a journalist in, in the 90s and then as an analyst, uh, you would have found uh, huge amounts of sympathy for, for Russia, desire for close relations with Russia, uh, that has vanished as a result of the war. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Russian speakers of Ukraine really are now united with others in hostility to Russia, even if they, you know, have diff somewhat different ideas about what victory should mean. And where we are now is, is that, you know, Russia has, since last year, managed to occupy actually quite a small uh, area of southeastern Ukraine while losing permanent. 85% of Ukraine. Now, that is a transformation, not just, you know, compared, as I say, to Russian hopes at the start of last year, uh, but compared to the past 300 years of Ukrainian and Russian history. What is it you want to see Western leaders say that they're not saying? They should say that we've already won uh, a great victory in Ukraine and for Ukraine. And that means that we could now afford uh, to compromise. I think that's really interesting. So, in other words, your suggestion is to flip the rhetoric from being nothing short of the 2014 borders, including Crimea, would constitute a victory, to we've already won. That's, I haven't heard that being suggested before, but it's an interesting idea. Well, that's because not enough historians are writing about this. But for somebody who actually knows, as I say, the history of, of Russia and Ukraine, 
not just past 300 years, but almost past 400 years. It should be bloody obvious. I mean, you know, the, the vast majority of Ukraine will now be fully independent and pro-Western. Now, that crushes Putin's hopes, but as I say, it also reverses, you, you know, ev- everything that's happened to, to, to Ukraine um, since the mid-17th century. Uh, and I would also say that, you know, those people who believe that uh, our task uh, is to back Ukraine to, to the point that you know, Russia is so totally defeated that the Russian state collapses and disappears, should have the honesty to say that clearly in public so that Western publics and electorates and members of parliament can make up their own minds. And if they, you know, if, if a, a genuine majority in the West decides, yes, that is our that is and should be our goal. Okay, um, but then we would at least know what we were aiming at and what we're risking in the process. Something tells me that the phrase regime change is not going to be very popular with a lot of voters in the West, but we shall see. Anatole Levin, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It's a really important point, that idea that talk of total victory of reconquering Crimea, which is so common among Western politicians and Western media, could actually be the most dangerous thing of all. They obviously think it's the moral high ground, that they're being virtuous, but is it creating momentum that will be hard to stop? Could it lead to even more frightening escalation? Thanks to Anatole Levin for sharing his thoughts and to you for tuning in. This was Unheard. 